Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Richard Burge. Hello, Richard. Hello. Welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you very much, Gary. Richard's an advisor on international affairs, sustainability, trade regulation, and facilitation. He believes that global citizenship is not a personal commitment, but rather a necessary and purposeful direction of travel to create prosperity in a sustainable and fairer world. Currently, he's the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce and Industry, a networking and business support nonprofit organization. He's also the founding partner of ESG Validation. Richard has held top management and governance positions in private, public, and civil society organizations. You're also the trustee of the Verification Research Training Information Center and a lot more associated with that. You hold a bachelor's in science of science in zoology and evolutionary biology for Durham University. That's right. Durham is in UK. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So one question I like to start with is, is how'd you get here? So the question is, when you were a very young boy, before the world or your parents told you what you should do or be, what did you like doing or what was your interest? Well, I had lots of interests, but the two prime ones was one was playing rugby union football, which is why I have no teeth of my own. And <laughs> the other was natural history, which enabled me to wander around in the woods, getting over the pain inflicted on me on a Saturday afternoon on the rugby field. Yeah, I didn't have parents who sort of wanted me to do anything. My father was a, a Welshman who'd been brought up in fairly impoverished circumstances and had risen in the armies, he said, largely as a consequence of war. But he was a classic Welshman. He was in complete awe of education. Yeah. I was the first child ever to go into further or higher education in our family. So he was just had this Welshman's complete godlike status for anyone who was a teacher. And then I became a teacher, which, of course, meant I could do no wrong. That sounds terrific. In the opening, I read uh, part of what you believe about global citizenship and to create a prosperity in a sustainable and fairer world. So the fairer world is, uh, well, we have done many podcasts. That notion hasn't come up, although I think it's a very important notion. So let's talk about fairness. Uh, A couple, and maybe these are quotes or I got this information. Fairness is a journey rather than a destination. Also, where too many go wrong is to equate fairness with weakness. Yeah. So I think fairness is is a very interesting concept. Let me give you another quotation. I used to work in the British Foreign Office. I used to run an agency in the Foreign Office uh, called Wilson Park, which many people in America will know. It's a conciliation center. It's our job, we used to say, was to put people in a room to talk about things they didn't want to talk about with the people (laughs) they really didn't want to talk about these things with. And at the time, the British Foreign Secretary was a remarkable man called William Hague. He was very fond of him and worked directly for him. And remember him saying that in foreign affairs, security and prosperity were two sides of the same coin. You 
couldn't have one without the other. But he did say, he said, what is the point of security if you do not have prosperity? And he said, you cannot have security if prosperity isn't shared. And sharing prosperity means just being fair with people. So it's a slightly complex way, I suppose, of saying you just want to live in a good world where you want people to do to you what do to right. you. Yeah. Um, you do exactly the same to them. Yeah, the golden rule. It seems like we're really lacking fairness in that definition in this world today. I think one of the things that's happened in the world, and it's particularly, I suppose, prevalent in trade, is we're becoming more fractured in the time that we have failed to negotiate the Doha round, which was meant to be this all-encompassing trade treaty covering the whole world and everything in it. So we spent 22 years failing to negotiate that. In the meantime, over 220 bilateral trade deals have been done from one country to another. Now, the problem with that is twofold. One is those trade deals are only bilateral. So there's inconsistencies from one to the other. And in fact, some of them can create perverse incentives. And the other thing about those trade deals is they've become increasingly, and forgive me, a lot of it's been in the previous four years under your President Trump, much more transactional. So instead of people looking at a trade deal and saying, actually, what we're trying to do here is not worry about what size our slice is, but to actually make the cake bigger, then everyone's slice gets bigger. We've presumed that it is a zero-sum game. A trade deal is simply the same pie, same size. And what you're trying to do is get a bigger slice than the other person. And then I think you take that to the extreme view, which I'm sure he's a regular listener to your podcast, but President (laughs) Trump uh, would say... My success is not measured by how much I've gained, but by how much you've lost. And that very transactional, mercantilist approach to life, I think, is an enemy of fairness. And it's an enemy of peace as a consequence, because if you can't produce fairness, if you cannot share prosperity by being fair, then you make peace much more fragile, which means you become less secure, which means you spend more money on an armament. And at some point, you send your daughters and sons to the battlefield to die. And in the end, you know, the thing I was always taught is my father, who's a soldier, would say soldiers only die on the battlefield when diplomats fail. And diplomats fail when politicians just don't have a fair view of the world. I know I make it sound incredibly simple. (laughs) Well, I mean, it brings up the interconnectedness of everything, which is certainly true with sustainable development. I mean, you can't. You can't achieve sustainable development without getting that fabric of all of the pieces woven together. Yeah, and it, because and some of these pieces in the fabric, to stretch the metaphor, are very closely related and others are not. So if we look at some aspect of environmentalism, like greenhouse gases, the fact of the matter is you exude a greenhouse gas within the atmosphere within about six to eight weeks, it could be literally anywhere in the atmosphere on the Earth. So it's an incredibly fungible piece of environmental measurement. You get other measurements which are not so fungible. So for instance, your great late Rachel Carson in Silent Spring pointed out the whole flow of heavy metals in food chains. Not very fungible, takes its time, but it's still there. So everything is connected. Sometimes some of that connectivity is very slow, is delivered through very long chains of attribution and connectivity. Other times they're incredibly fungible. But in the end, everything is connected. Right. And I mean, environmentally, that's true. But 
social justice is also affected by the slow migration of metals through. I mean, it becomes yeah, more immediate. Yeah, but they, I mean, this is what, you know, somebody who's trained in evolutionary biology, I think processes are very similar, whether you're talking about biological processes, evolutionary processes, physical processes, societal processes. They're, the process is still the same. It's just the means of transmission, either in terms of an idea or a molecule or a substance is very different. And that, that causes changes in the progress of it, but in the end, it's the same process. And the evolution of the universe is, is a process of evolution, which is the same as the evolution of species, which is the same as the evolution of ideas. I'm right now in the middle of a book, which I'm finding fascinating. It's called Good Power, and it's by the first woman CEO um, of IBM, Jeannie Romney. Jenny. Jenny. Incredible. She talks a lot about that as you say, the whole pie needing to be a bigger cake. (laughs) Because you just, if everything in this world, uh, you know, how are we ever going to get there when people have different political systems, different beliefs, different to get the world to cooperate on something like climate change, which is just so real now. I don't know as much about England, but certainly, you know, in the United States with the fire and floods and tornadoes and hurricanes. I mean, we used to have things like this five to 10 years, one, and now we have them a couple times a year. Yeah, I don't, you know, it has to be said in America, of course, you do things in a big and bigger way than we do in Britain. (laughs) Everything in Britain, you know, major change for us is a slight rainfall, which we get very anxious about. Uh, It's all a matter of scale. Or sun. (laughs) Or sun, yeah. No, we don't, no, we don't do sun. Well, there's three days in the summer we do it. Yes. But we, I think it's the same everywhere. And you look for those indicators and sometimes they're in your face like a tornado. Sometimes they're a bit more subtle. So here in Britain, we're finding a fall in garden birds and feeding birds and ornithology, big thing in Britain. One of the largest organizations in Britain is a bird watching organization. Oh, wow. Larger than any political part, scale larger. So, so people notice that different changes in where these songbirds are, drops in overall population. The Thames Barrier, which is to prevent the, the Thames, it's a tidal river, prevents London from flooding, originally designed when it was opened 30 years ago to shut maybe two or three times a year. It now shuts two or three times a month. And there will have to be a new Thames barrier within the next 20 years, which is currently under design and will be construction. And that barrier is going to have to be able to close it probably once a day. And that's just the reality of life. So I think we're learning about it. I'm very interested in this thing, though, about power and, and good power in, in organizations. And I, I strongly believe that companies should have purpose and that money is simply it's two things. One is it's a means to deliver your purpose. And the other second thing is it's an indicator of whether you are actually delivering it. It's not a purpose in itself. And I think companies who just focus on money are focused on the slice of the cake and not focused on getting the cake to be bigger. Because getting the cake to be bigger in any form of economic activity, in any form of business, in any form of resource delivery is actually a collaborative endeavor. Now, 
Okay, you can make the cake bigger, but there will come a time, as anyone who's, who's done evolutionary biology will tell you, it's something called resource limitation. So your population of an animal or a species will grow to the level at which suddenly one of the resources it needs starts to actually become a limiting factor on further growth. Now, in naturally occurring biological world, that usually means that the species will die out, which is not a problem. Although, as, as one of our most, James Lovelock, one of our famous biologists once said, this is the way Gaia works. Species die out. Uh, the only problem if it's your species and it dies out on Thursday afternoon, then it gets personal. So we, the point is, you, but we can't exist like that as human beings because we have prescient cognizance, we can look to the future, we can see what the consequences are going to be. So we don't want to die out. So that means then we have to learn as a collaborative activity, instead of using collaborative activities to grow the cake, we have to start as a collaborative activity, learning how to use the cake more productively and more effectively. That does mean the cake stays small. And if you're a short-termist, you don't believe in process, you don't believe in any form of science whatsoever, you don't believe in mathematics, Basically, you're a property developer from New York who's named from Ray Nameless. Uh, <laughs> you just keep charging ahead and you're probably dead before the consequences are realized on the, on the earth. But actually, most sensible people say, actually, OK, so how do we share this resource? But how do we and we know that resource is not getting any bigger. So then how do we use it much more effectively and efficiently? Now, that is what an intelligent species should do. Correct. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Richard, let's talk about your backyard. You're the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce and Industry. I would imagine a very, very exciting job. LCCI is committed to supporting members of all sizes, reduce their carbon emissions, and protect the planet. We're providing a wide range of initiatives to help businesses on the road to net zero. Crikey, are we doing all that? Brilliant. Yeah, right. <laughs> I must go out and tell my colleagues. I think... I try and summarise. So there's two ways I describe the London Chamber of Commerce. It's first of all, the giveaway is in our name. We're a chamber. We're a big room where businesses meet and do business. That's basically what we do. So everything we do in one way or the other, whether it's research, policy, lobbying, site, whatever it is, in the end is about businesses meeting and doing good business and working together. But to do that, you have to get persuade them to be on this incredibly and extraordinarily exciting journey of delivering and creating prosperity. And that we believe very strongly that the fundamental purpose of business is to share prosperity and to sustain peace. Strong business links, trading links, but actually strong business links should actually sustain peace. And you can only create strong and sustainable business links with shared with securing peace if you actually share the prosperity that is being generated. And the only way you can share prosperity effectively is to be fair. So a lot of this is preemptive action. I mean, in the world of health, you call this primary healthcare. How do you do things now to prevent the disease actually arriving or the illness occurring or the disability starting to take over somebody's life? It's much more, it's two things. One is your well-being is far better. It's far less stressful. It's a lot less expensive and it tends to work better than curing diseases. So I think somehow we've got to look at business and think, how, what is the primary healthcare approach to business management, business delivery? And that's why I keep saying that business is a journey. Its purpose is a journey. It's not, you know, we can all 
the trouble with you know having goals is we then start to have a mission and we have a vision and we start to have this view of an emerald city and when we get there it'll all be wonderful there is no emerald city we're not getting there it's not a yellow brick road with lots of munchkins helping us it's a journey which can be unpredictable and it's about our behavior on that journey and it's the process of the journey is what is the way we live our lives it's not there is no it's a journey without end, but the joy comes through the process of travel, not through an ambition to, to put your feet up at the end. Do you think that it's hard for a lot of the business leaders who are from previous generations where they were running businesses and the only measurement of prosperity of a business was their financial stability? Do you think it's harder for them to lead companies in this sort of new era of business, be the business roundtables, line in the sand that businesses should be not just for shareholders, but be for the multiple constituents, than it will be or is for younger leaders? I don't think so. I think that if we look at the British FTSE 100, which uh-huh. is the 100 companies in the, the top of the stock exchange. Not a, last, a few months ago, somebody called Tony Pidgeley died. Tony Pidgeley was the last person who was executive chair of a company in the FTSE 100 that he had created. Remarkable man, left school at 16, created the house building company in, in Britain, hugely successful called Barclay Homes. He was the last one. All the others, and I'm not going to be forgiven for this, basically are stewards of somebody the wealth somebody else has created. They are basically accountants who have come in, they sit there, they marginally increase the wealth compared to what it's been increased by the founders, and they come away with huge resort rewards, usually generated because they have a short-term interest in shareholder value, and shareholders now are, short, are not patient, they're short-term. They're not interested in the yield of the company. They're interested in its value. And the more they can increase that yield. So the whole thing becomes very short term. I think actually people who've been running small businesses for a long time have a much healthier view of the world. This notion that every business has got to grow. Yes, some will grow and some will be brilliant. But unicorns are rare and mythical creatures for a very good reason. (laughs) They are rare and mythical creatures. They don't come around very often. Most businesses are not unicorns, yet we all behave as though every business is going to be a unicorn. Presidents and prime ministers get on planes with unicorns in their heads and also in, in the passenger seats because they only want the big contracts. They don't want the small ones. They won't want the ones which are persistent and patient creators of small levels of wealth, consistent employment and consistent engagement with the, if you like, the, the social ecosystems in which they live. So we've got businesses here in London. London's an interesting city. There's 880,000 active businesses in London. Wow. 880,000. The vast majority, they will moan like fury, of course, and they go through periods of, of real hardship. But a lot of them don't want to be bigger. I know a baker in Hounslow, which is in West London, one of the most talented bakeries in the world, and they've got three shops, doesn't want to do any more. So I say, so what are you going to do? He said, I'm not going to grow. I'm just going to become more productive. The way I'm going to do that is I'm going to produce different varieties of breads using different uh, source grains. I'm going to employ my people in a different way. I'm going to create more bakers. I'm going to create more apprentices who will have to go somewhere else because I don't want to open more bakers. I don't want to do that. I want to do other things. That's my wealth. 
That's my product. <laughs> That's my purpose. Yes. Wow. And in a way, you get it occasionally with big people. So look at Bill Gates, the man who created Microsoft. Now, probably he'd say, oh, I could have created and grown Microsoft in a very different way. But now look at him. He can't get rid of the money quick enough. Quick enough. Yeah. His purpose has become sharing prosperity, creating fairness in the world. That, the purpose of the wealth of Microsoft, whether Microsoft likes it or not, <laughs> is actually social justice. Yeah. That's its purpose now. I think that's hugely exciting. It doesn't need to just be younger people. I do feel we have a lot of younger people going into professions and companies who just simply see it as wealth. I think they, I'm particularly worried about accountancy and financial management and law which seem to have very short-term ambitions, who simply see process as a way not of achieving justice and fairness, but actually as a way of making money. I just think there's a, the moral compass in those professions has been lost. That's a bit unfair because we know in those professions there are people with hugely strong moral compasses, but it's quite hard work now to actually have that moral compass in those professions, and it shouldn't be. They should see themselves as enablers and of doing the right thing. And this all sounds very idealistic, but actually, I, I don't think it's that idealistic because a lot of people I meet live that life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really do live it in their business mm -hmm. lives. I would argue that the FTSE 100, a lot of those accountants or caretakers you are talking about don't really have a clear purpose. And they're also being rewarded for doing the wrong things. They are. And we've created perverse incentives for doing that. And a lot yeah. of that has the hands of regulators and governments for allowing those, for making those. But you can change. And we talk about markets as though they are inevitable consequences, but it's a bit like genetics. I remember Richard Dawkins in his first book, The Selfish Gene, was talking about inheritance in genetics and Darwinianism in genetics in body form and behavior. And then he starts talking about genetics as applied to what he called memes, which are ideas and the way the evolution of ideas can happen in the same way. And then he points out, he says something very fair. He says, the thing about genetics is it's, it is completely amoral. If you want to live in a fair world, genetics is not going to do you a favor, but you can make it work to your advantage. And the same thing happens with memes. The same thing happens with markets. Markets, free markets is a choice. It's not an inevitability. It's the lowest common denominator of market operation. And we've been lured by people, not least Lawrence Friedman, into believing that free markets is a nirvana to be sought. It isn't. It's a baseline system. And what you should be doing is adding quality to that system, which makes the system work for you, not work against you. And so I think very strongly that it's very easy for regulators and governments to apply rules and controls and expectations on the use of markets, which makes them contribute towards a more prosperous and fairer world without actually just pretending that markets aren't there. But markets are not a divine right. They're just a process. Wow. That's a lot to unpack, but it's absolutely true. Europe, you know, has been way ahead of the United States as far as um, complying with all sorts of regulation for... Hang on, no, don't do yourselves down. No? I, no, I think that's wrong. I think some of the... I know there's some problems, but some of the conservation success stories of America have been extraordinary. The whole national park system, the setting aside of preserved areas. Now, oh, I know true. there are some problems, but the way America has gone about that has just been absolutely extraordinary. And there's been... Yes, there are some a few bad examples, but the vast majority of examples in America over the conservation of nature have been just absolutely exemplary. I've set an example 
for the rest of the world. They've demonstrated what can be achieved at scale. I don't do this off down. You're a great country. No, but national parks haven't been pushed to create revenue for shareholders. <laughs> as well, no, not everything say. has to create revenue for shareholders. I mean, mm-hmm. for instance, we have a national health service in Britain, which is undergoing you know, quite a lot of turmoil and strife at the moment. But its purpose is to create a healthy workforce with a longer uh-huh. life. Its job is not to stop people dying because that way everyone's going to die. This may come as a shock. I have a doctor friend who says he's never saved a life. He has prevented many unnecessarily early deaths, but he's never saved a life. He said his job is to actually try and keep people alive in such a way that they have well-being, they can create wealth, they can earn wealth, and they feel well and they live healthy and productive lives for as long as they're given. And I think that it's perfectly possible to have market-based systems. I mean, in Britain, the National Health Service is quite interesting. Most people in the National Health Service are privately employed. All our general practitioners are actually self-employed. They have contracts from government, but they're not employed by the government. And they run, a lot of them run very successful businesses on the delivering a National Health Service in that context. So it's perfectly possible to have a market system where risk of government funds is shelled out because you get people to run their practices as proper businesses without compromising the bold endeavor of the health service, but using the market to make it happen. That's what I think we can do a lot of with ESG. And part of this is about market management. So potentially carbon markets, despite the fact we've had some real problems with carbon markets, their principle, if run effectively and with global agreement, could actually be extremely extremely productive and extremely impactful and market system on climate change. We could have the same thing with biodiversity credits. We could have the same thing with social credits. And there's some work going on here in the city of London, the beating heart of capitalism. There are people here working on policy performance bonds. So this is when a government takes out a loan, could be a massive loan, and it could spend that money on whatever it likes. But the interest rate, its coupon rate is determined by the achievement of social goals. So the more social goals which are achieved against the scale, the coupon rate goes down. They're not achieving those social goals. They just pay more for the money. It's a remarkable market incentive on governments to actually deliver the policy outcomes. And it means the policy, the person who's lending the money isn't saying to government, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and end up with really difficult measurements and saying, are you using the money in the right way? So don't you care what you use the money for? If you want to use the money to, I don't know, pay for artists to paint murals all over your city. But the policy bond indicator and the coupon rate is based on the number of people who have tuberculosis. You suddenly find the government just gets on with sorting out tuberculosis because it pays out less. So I think, and you've got people here in the city of London who are working on it, working on that. And I think there's some really exciting stuff going on now, but how do you use the power of markets to actually do the right thing. I mean, after all, we do the same in biology. We're constantly looking at the power of evolution through genetics to do the right thing. It is the most agenetics, as Richard Dawkins says, it's completely amoral. It can do really awful things if it's just left on its own. But actually, if you contain it, if you control it, if you utilize it, if you surf on it, sorry, to use a Californian analogy, if you see the wave and you ride the wave on your surfboard, you're using it, you're making it effective. That's true. (laughs) I do know. So I'm going to get down into something here. The mayor of London has an ambitious goal to be zero carbon by 2030. He has an ambitious goal, actually, to be mayor of London for the third time. So let's be clear. 
So there's something called the ultra low emission zone. Yeah. And I read where uh, the LCCI is urging the mayor to enhance, expand upon the ULEZ. Yeah, we are. But yeah. we're, saying, we're trying to make it work. <laughs> the problem with the mayor is, is, is he's decided to expand the ULEZ. Zed. Said. But the problem is, the question how do businesses respond to that? So the best way to respond to it, the, in fact, the way the businesses can only respond to it is to buy electric vehicles. The problem is supply. So we're trying to say, look, have this ambition, set it up, but provide for the next few years a buttress for businesses who are saying, I'm trying to buy an electric vehicle, but I can't find one. Or I put the deposit down, it's got a delivery of three years because everyone else is buying an electric vehicle. So if you like, that's an example for me of a policy program that should be implemented with cognizance to the real resource limitation that that can and, and will occur. So the resource limitation here is small trucks, which are electric vehicles. The other one is charging points. He does not have enough charging points around the city. And he will introduce the UL, he said, that the danger then is the ultra low emission zone, instead of actually becoming an incentive for people to do the right behavior, starts to become a tax. And in other words, then government starts to become reliant. They don't want you to have the vehicle. They don't want the extra charging points because otherwise you'll start having electric vehicles and you'll stop paying the tax. So you've got to provide incentivization of people has got to both be, it's got to have consequences if you choose not to do it. But you've actually got to enable people to do it if they wish. And if you set up barriers whereby they cannot deliver and you just punish them for something they can't avoid. I mean, frankly, we stopped doing that to children 100 years ago. <laughs> That's true. So yes, we That's do true. support it. It's a good endeavour. It's the mm -hmm. right thing to do. But at the moment, there are thousands of businesses in London who cannot exercise the choice to do the right thing. It's not an option open to them. Not because of money. It's literally getting a vehicle and literally finding somewhere where you can charge it. Which requires collaboration. Much it requires collaboration. collaboration. It requires thinking, forgive me, beyond the time span of the next election. Yes. Sorry, that's not an advocacy for autocracy mm -hmm. where you don't have elections, uh, but we, you know, we well, have to you find some way of incentivizing people to have slightly more, slightly longer time span of thought. Right. But you have that in corporations as well. I mean, that's why there's so much of a push by people who are serious about ESG to link it to compensation within the structures of management, because otherwise you stay in this short term world where they're going to be long gone and retired and they want it now. But I think there are other ways you can do that. So you can put those in. But if there are countervailing forces, people will just balance off the forces. And it will be a deal, if you like, between countervailing measures. So, for instance, yes, you can put it in. And in a way, sometimes it's happening through shareholder pressure, it's particularly happening sometimes through regulation. So, for instance, here, companies now in the FTSE 350 have to put very complex statements about modern slavery. They can't just say, we don't like modern slavery. It's a very bad thing. <laughs> which is what they used to do. In fact, we're the country, of course, like you originally, actually avoiding slavery was seen to be actually a market stupidity. But we've now it's a much more complex statement. You're not, you can't do that. You have to say, what measures do you take? What measures do you take in your supply chain? You have to actually explain how you do it. And we're finding now with pension funds on the ESG, um, actually have to state their ESG policy in their annual report to shareholders. And that will just get 
over the years more and more granular about how you do that. But then on the other hand, you've got to provide a bit of positive incentive. So I think one of the things is one of our problems is patient capital. So the problem is at the moment, we I, one of the ways of doing this is say to, to have variable taxation rates on dividend payments and to do things like have a differential taxation rate for, for, for the payment on selling shares. So for instance, Share retention is one way of getting companies, shareholders to pressure companies for long-term consistent performance rather than short-term gain. And the way you do that is you tax people on, on how long they've owned a share. So if you owned a share for half a nanosecond, because that's what a computer trade has done, then perhaps 100% tax will dissuade you from doing that. If you own a share for seven or 10 years, perhaps you should have no tax on that. Now, I've invented those numbers. But if you had that graduating scale, it immediately incentivizes a differential pressure from stockholders on the companies, and the companies will respond to that differential shell, because then the stockholder will say, right, your performance basis, O manager, is not going to be on our long-term, on our short-term rise in share. We want to see a long-term consistent rise in share, because our yield will be better over time from that than a short-term gain. So behave in that way. We've already done it. I mean, you've already seen food. I was looking at a major British airline company the other day, and they have short and long-term stock options. So you have a director who could be getting a long-term stock option, which won't, he won't get for five years, and only get it in five years if the policy implications of what he's done have been followed through. So we are starting to do those fairly intelligent things. Yeah, it's much more complicated than just a simple equation. And there's so many different ways to come at it and to be able to achieve it. I, here in the United States. But this is the reality of the world. This is yeah. the reality. This is the reality of the physical world. So you go back to Einstein's theory, uh, special theory of relativity equals MC squared. The world was simple. Have you seen the standard theory of countervailing forces in the universe at the moment? And it still doesn't include gravity. That's <laughs> the reality. It's complicated. It's yeah, I'm curious. You were a founding partner at ESG Validation. Well, I'm still involved. I'm a bit of a backseat because I saw okay. full time. But, but talk about purpose. Why did you create it? Well, because we started to a little group of us got together and we were the usual thing. We were sort of talking, <laughs> talking <laughs> and having a drink. And so the first reason for creating it is they were four mate, three mates of mine who'd never met each other. And I brought them together. And we thought. We've got to have a reason for sitting around every Friday night having a drink. <laughs> and, uh, so let's create a company and we'll call it a business meeting. So <laughs> persuade our partners. That's why we're in our mutual sheds on the on the Zoom to each other. <laughs> so let, I'll be honest, that's the reason. No, I think genuinely we were all of us were involved in ESG in one way or the other. And I think our shared concern was how do you measure ESG in a way that withstands robust scrutiny? How do you verify that those measurements are accurate? And then finally, how do you validate any claims you make on the back of that measurement? And I think we started to become a bit cynical about companies who are out there who would come along and say, we will give you a rating for your NSG, you know, a gold star to put in your report book. But then, of course, they'd measure you and say, well, actually, you have, you've got a tin star, I'm afraid. It's very bad. By some, but you're very fortunate because actually we have this consultancy operation here <laughs> that can 
miraculously convert your tin star into a gold star in return for a very large sum of payment, very little work by your C-suite. And so we got very cynical about that. And we said, actually, it's not simple. It's not a simple rating system. What we should be doing in terms of validation, we should be helping companies make statements which are accurate, but which are robust in the face of independent scrutiny. And that's not simply a glib measurement. It could actually be quite a complex statement. And we felt that was following the zeitgeist of an awful lot of regulators. So here in Britain, the regulation over modern slavery is doing that. It's, you can't just, it's not a number, it's not a grade. It's quite a complex set of statements about what you can claim. And also what you're honest about, so we can't claim that yet. We are, and this is what we're now working on. And I think the other thing we were really keen about is that the threat facing companies on ESG is not actually within their own companies. It's their supply chains. Because how do you do that? How do you? And so this was about us helping other companies saying, how do you interrogate your supply chain? How do you ask the right questions? And this is very individual for every different company, like animals in a food chain, very different supply chain to anyone else, even if they're in the same business, that supply chain will be different. So how do you interrogate that supply chain? How do you ask the right questions? How do you verify the answers are correct? And then what claims can you legitimately make at the end? Because I think the world is forgiving if you turn around and say, we are not 100% sure we don't have modern slavery in our system, but we are working hard to do it. This is how we're doing it. That is much more robust than just having a gold star in your report book. That's the purpose of our company. That's what we're trying to yeah. do, is to help companies approach that in a realistic way. It's very much needed. IBM just came out with the report and a study, and they said consumers say that their trust in ESG reporting in 2021 it was 48% believed it. It's down to only 20% believe what's, yeah. what's being out there. So It takes a few bad reports to right? actually yeah. down the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, so that's very much... Uh, in line with what the impact that you guys can make with that company. And of course, it tracks with communicating progress rather than just claims. Companies can tell a story. You're absolutely right, right. Rocket. They can tell a story about their journey. <laughs> Back mm -hmm. to journeys again. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And another thing that gets me is that you can't, it, a lot of people are claiming they're going to be carbon free by a certain thing, but then they don't really have, they aren't specifying what actions they're taking. And, and another thing is, is that I've found that in a lot of companies, it's not just interrogating their child, how to do that right with their supply chains, but helping their supply chains address changing within their own companies because they're partners. I mean, I think a lot of people don't just want to abandon those people and find partners who have got it more together. I mean, I think that they should innovate and be a part of the companies that are the supply chain and being a part of their chain, that it's going to increase the prosperity of everybody. Yeah, so there's, I think you're right, but there are two things I'd like to add to that. One is you often have to start a journey knowing the journey, to have confidence in the journey and your companions on it. So we take Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and this is a quote from the book, and I think it was quoted verbatim in the film, which is great, because it is such an important thing. It's when Frodo says, 
I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. And the first thing Elrond does is choose the people who will go on that way with him. Now, I'm a Tolkien was an esteemed academic. I think a lot of what Tolkien talks about is the nature of quest, which is a long-term story of humankind. It's a, it resonates a lot with the human condition. An individual life itself is a journey which has an inevitable end, but it is the manner in which you can conduct that journey that matters. And so I think it's perfectly legitimate for a company to say, we're going to start this journey. We have no idea how we're going to do it. But this is our, and to set an ambition which they may not achieve, but to say this ambition sets our direction of travel. And I think that is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Obviously, as you go along the journey, you have to show you're actually making progress. But I think that's a legitimate starting point. And the other thing is you have to accept that things will go wrong through even through the best intentions. So let me give you an example of how a perverse incentive can appear. There was a, I think there were a, a British, I'm not sure, chocolate company, high-end chocolate company with very strong values, very strong thing about they weren't going to buy their cocoa on the open markets. They were going to buy them direct from shareholders and the smallholders, I think it was Ghana or somewhere in West Africa, and they were going to pay these shareholders a price for the cocoa. But they would also then, once the chocolate was sold, the shareholders would also get an element of the profit the company was making at the final point of sale. Very good. So in other words, it was the, the person growing the primary product was actually going to get a stake in the value-added product at its final mm. point of sale before it was shoved into somebody's mouth. And they did it. Great scheme. And then suddenly figures started coming in for attendance at primary schools in those areas. It had dropped through the floor. Kids were not being educated. Why? Because the better quality in the oh my chocolate God. these shelves produced, <laughs> you, you can see it, can't you? The more they got paid. And the consequence was they kept the kids out of school in order to help you increase the crop yield. Yeah. So oh. then, of course, the company had to go back and say, eh, that's not quite what we meant. So they <laughs> went back. And I think what they did is they set up an incentive scheme, which also did things like contributed towards children's education costs and things like that. So it was they managed to offset the first intent. But first intentions happen even when you've got the best of intentions. Things will go wrong. Going yeah. back to the point we made earlier, things are complicated. It's not simple. Yeah. It's not E equals M squeeze C squared. It's standard theory, and we still don't know how the gravity angle works on it. Right. That's we keep how complicated. We gotta, yeah. yeah. We got to keep yeah. inventing. Yeah. Fantastic. This has been great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're it's still been a, a real teacher. pleasure to talk to you. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. No, no, yeah. no. I'm uh, an old man in a hurry now. That's what I am. <laughs> yeah, your point of view is greatly appreciated. Yeah. Anyway, well, I think, I think the final thing, us. just quickly to say, is that this is not going against the tide of business. This is how business can and should work because. The market model is simply a baseline operation. It's the e equals MC squared. What matters is the standard theory, which is how you make the universe work. And that's business has just got to get itself into that level of sophistication. Well said. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure. Take care, both of you. Yeah, bye have bye. a good evening. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, 
head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.